Nearly every time someone hears that I'm an archaeologist, they want to tell me about an artifact they found. Who doesn't, right? The thrill of holding in your hand an object that was last held by someone hundreds or even thousands of years ago. It's kind of mystical. Having something from the past that is physically here in the present. Um, historian David Lowenthal has spoken very eloquently about relics and our attraction to them. But people also ask me if I could give them information, often on artifacts they have in their collection. Metaphorically, this is often what an archaeologist is feeling when a collector asks us to do that. We often clam up and get the deer in the headlights look. As archaeologist Bonnie Pitlato has said, we employ a risk avoidance strategy which includes overlooking or outright avoiding interactions with amateurs and collectors. Because of ethical concerns, we have surrounding engagement or collaboration with collectors. Simply put, we are wondering if we should talk to them or not. Will it do more harm than good? This is what we worry about. We've been taught that if we engage or collaborate with collectors, we inadvertently provide validation of their collections that encourages them to keep collecting or aids them in making a sale. And this, in turn, results in further damage to archaeological sites and our ability to understand the past. And so for the past five decades, we've mostly sought out ways to avoid engaging with collectors and amateur archaeologists. Yet artifact collecting on private land remains legal and vigorously defended activity. Our lack of engagement hasn't put a stop to the practice. And this has led many professionals to rethink the deer in the headlights risk avoidance stance, because archaeologists risk losing much more than they gain by marginalizing, demeaning, or even just ignoring collectors. So here's an example of what I mean by that. Last summer, I was put in touch with a landowner in central Montana that had a bison kill site on his ranch. This is David Bradley. He's a bobcat. And he wanted to know if MSU would consider coming out to excavate the site and perhaps involve school kids and members of his church. The site was first found over a decade ago by his friend James Bergstrom, who had been leasing the ranch. And with David Bradley's permission, he dug portions of the site for years so he could collect projectile points. But David was concerned because more and more members of the community were asking permission to come out and dig for projectile points. And as you can see, this was leaving large stretches of exposed bone bed. Bones left to deteriorate on the surface, stratigraphy all jumbled. It's hard for an archaeologist to look at. David Bradley wanted to do what was right, but he felt that unless the university were to take an interest, he would have a hard time turning down requests to dig the site. The Bradley Ranch is located near the dead center of Montana, outside the small town of Garneal, which is just north of Judith Gap. I've put a star in the center of this map, but that star is way too big, really, for what <laughs> Garneal is. All around him are private ranches, most of which contain teepee rings, artifact scatters, and very likely other bison kill sites. But this information is known only to locals. These sites have never been recorded and do not exist in the State Historic Preservation Office's Antiquities Database. We looked. There's a big gap in the center of Montana. It's all private land. There's some railroad stuff. There's not much, unless it's on public land. David Bradley's neighbors have been wary of his decision to involve the university, fearing that archaeologists working with federal land agencies will want to appropriate their land and or their artifact collections. There is a great deal of mistrust and misunderstanding. 
Around Judith Gap, the local landowners are much more likely to grant private collectors access to sites on their property than a professional archaeologist, either academic or agency. I want to understand how things got this way, and to do so, I knew I needed to take a closer look into the history of archaeological practice in Montana. What I mean by that is how the practice of collecting and investigating the past by both engaged amateurs and professionals unfolded in Montana, sort of a social history. I wanted to understand why people who care deeply about the same thing have come to be in such opposition and hold so much mistrust of each other. So by engaged amateurs, I mean a subset of the general public, ranging from avocationalists to collectors. I'm not talking about individuals who loot or vandalize sites or who buy and sell artifacts or who knowingly and purposely collect illegally off public lands. The people I'm referring to are those who collect from sites on private property with landowner permission. And note throughout this presentation, I'm just going to be using the terms amateur and collector interchangeably. So this research has been sort of a history with a mission to better understand the past in order to find ways to impact the present, to create opportunities for collaboration that might improve trust and the conditions for preservation. And before I delve into that history, I want to take a closer look at the research on amateur archaeologists and collectors. The relationship between professionals and amateurs in American archaeology has been a topic of debate since the formalization of the discipline in the early 20th century, after the passage of the Antiquities Act in 1906. The act made it illegal for anyone to collect or excavate sites on public lands without a permit. And the only person who could obtain permits were newly established professionals. The act made archaeologists the sole stewards and authorities of the ancestral remains of indigenous peoples found on public lands. And of course, tribes were never consulted in that legislation. But archaeologists have long recognized that amateur interest and labor has been integral to the development and ongoing growth of the discipline. Amateurs find sites, they share information, they donate collections, they sometimes analyze artifacts, participate in fieldwork, and sometimes publish research and field reports. Yet beginning in the late 19th century, concerns over the relic hunting for the curio market and the looting and destruction of archaeological sites, particularly in the American Southwest, has often pitted amateurs and professionals in vehement opposition to each other. Dozens of journals, spanning each decade of the 20th and 21st centuries, demonstrate the historical and ongoing concerns over the activities of amateurs and collectors by professionals and that impact on heritage preservation. However, for this project, I wanted to focus primarily on studies in which scholars have taken an ethnographic approach who've talked directly to amateurs and collectors, conducted interviews, oral histories, surveys. And there are three key points that have emerged from this type of research on artifact collecting. The first is that legal artifact collecting on private land continues to thrive, and it's unlikely to be abated through public education programs alone. Second, the history of Plains archaeology has largely been dependent on the knowledge and collections of amateurs. They've identified the vast majority of key sites. In her 2014 article entitled An Argument for Ethical, Proactive Archaeologist-Collector Collaboration, Bonnie Poblado has shown that collaboration with collectors has been beneficial to the discipline of archaeology as well as the public. She substantiates this point by demonstrating that 80% of Paleo-Indian, particularly Clovis sites, the earliest inhabited sites in North America, 
that are more than 12,500 years old, are found by local collectors most of the time. These early sites are deeply buried and difficult to find, and many of them are on private land. And finally, surveys and ethnographies of collectors demonstrate there is considerable overlap in the attitudes and motivations of professionals, avocationalists, and collectors towards heritage. Some archaeologists are even advocating that artifact collecting can be reframed and understood as a form of meaningful social practice that connects collectors to place and heritage. My own interviews with collectors in Montana has revealed a similar overlap in the practices and motivations of amateurs and professionals. Collectors in Central and Southeast Montana discuss artifact hunting as a part of their identity, especially within a broader community of collectors and interested amateurs and educators. Many of them have family histories of collecting, and that practice is associated with a personal connection to landscape and heritage. Most of these collectors engage in non-destructive legal collecting of surface materials and keep mental or physical records of where each item was found. And none of them buys or sells artifacts. The collectors that I interviewed all share information with each other, either informally or at gatherings, but they often do not report findings to professionals who they complain are secretive and stingy because professionals <laughs> refuse to share information and access to collections in return. And just to note, regarding the stinginess and secrecy, um, public land locations, there's often sensitive sites that are still in ongoing use by native groups or subject to some vandalism. So there's often a good reason for the secrecy. However, um, it's important to understand both sides of this, this issue. Okay, so on to the history. Montana was the last state in the lower 48 to attract professional archeologists. And consequently, it has relied on amateur knowledge and experience until very recently which, almost paradoxically, is what has likely laid the groundwork for the present mistrust and resentments. I am going to briefly discuss four historical phases. First, 1880-1930, I'm calling BP, before professionals. <coughs> Getting creative with my historical titles here. 1930-1945 um, is WPA projects, and uh, Montana gained some national attention. Uh, 1945 to 1960, we get the beginnings of university archaeology and sort of a golden age for amateurs and collaboration with the few professionals that were here, uh, beginnings of archaeological societies um, in the late 50s and then early 60s. And then finally, the last period, 1960-1990, is when we have broad professionalization in archaeology, the passage of more preservation legislation that leads to the rise of cultural resource management archaeology in the state. This meant that there were changes in how and why archaeology was done, as well as where it was done. And it also helped lead to this increased marginalization of amateurs and growing divisions among stakeholders. Similar to other parts of the Great Plains, Montana was on the margins of early 20th century national trends towards professionalization in archaeology. This is likely due to a number of factors, including the relatively late settlement of Euro-Americans in the region, persistently low population densities in Montana, and the more modest material remains left behind by the indigenous people who inhabited the northwestern plains. The semi-nomadic tribes of Montana's plains did not leave behind multi-story standing architecture like the Pueblo Southwest or complexes of large burial mounds like the Southeast and the Midwest. Ethnographers had come in the late 19th century, early on George Bird Grinnell and later Alfred Kroeber and Clark Whistler, 
They came to document what they saw as a majestic but vanishing Plains Indian culture, but they paid little attention to the material remains. Until the 1930s, anthropologists presumed that the occupation of the cold and arid northern plains was too harsh to have been occupied for long periods of time before Native Americans had acquired the horse. They believed plains cultures lacked any significant depth, that they were recent migrants. They also presumed that mobile foragers left little behind and that there wouldn't be any sites with stratigraphic depth. So there's only really a handful of early reports by military expeditions in the area in the late 1800s, and not much more after that until the 30s. Sustained archaeological fieldwork only began with the advent of the Montana Archaeological Survey and the excavations at Pictograph and Ghost Caves outside of Billings, both of which were conducted under the aegis of the Works Progress Administration beginning in 1936. The cave sites had amazing preservation and deep stratigraphy. It attracted national attention, the attention of scholars who came to visit, and tourism. It changed the way people thought about archaeology in the region. During this time, they also excavated sites in Red Lodge and the well-known Hagen site southeast of Glendive. The WPA projects were initiated by H. Melville Sayer. He's in the lower corner of your screen there. He arrived in Montana in 1932 as an English professor at the School of Mines in Butte. He was the first to teach archaeology there. He thought miners might encounter archaeological remains, and he just really liked anthropology and archaeology. But he had no formal training, and thus was himself a well-educated amateur. He enlisted engineering students to survey and map, pictograph and ghost caves, and in 1937, he hired a local rancher named Oscar Lewis, a self-taught amateur, as foreman to oversee the excavations. Lewis had come to Montana as a young cowboy, and in 1918 homesteaded 320 acres just southeast of Glendive. After years of drought and economic depression, he abandoned his ranch, took his family in search of relief work with the WPA. By the time Sayer met him in the summer of 1936, Lewis was widely recognized as an autodidact and the local expert of archaeology in southeast Montana. The WPA projects were the first attempt to document sites and conduct formal excavations in Montana. And, like many WPA projects, it was essentially run by amateurs. That changed with the arrival of William Malloy, who took over the project as director in 1940. Sayer had been let go almost two years earlier. He had a problem with alcohol and with women other than his wife. <clears throat> that photo in the corner kind of says it all. <laughs> Bill Malloy was a young graduate student from the University of Chicago at the time, and he supervised the final season of excavations at Pictograph and Ghost Caves, and then worked closely with Oscar Lewis to collect data on several other significant sites in the region. Though Lewis kept daily field notes, he never published any of his own findings. With only a ninth grade education, Lewis struggled to write in the manner appropriate for archaeological journals. So Malloy ended up publishing reports on several other significant sites in Montana, all of which were originally discovered and collected by Lewis. They had two uh, brief co-authored reports on artifacts that Oscar Lewis had found. Malloy probably did the write-up. Malloy was always careful to credit Oscar Lewis, very significantly in the acknowledgments to his 1953 dissertation, which he wrote on pictograph and ghost caves, which eventually became published in 1958, a preliminary historical outline of the Northwestern Plains. Malloy's synthesis is still the basis for understanding the chronology of this region. 
Molloy himself went on to have a remarkable career. He was hired at the University of Wyoming in 1948, and he continued to work um, in Wyoming and Montana until he eventually um, made a career change and started doing archaeology on Easter Island, for which he's well known. The Golden Age, 45 to 60. Formal surveys and excavations stopped in Montana with the conclusion of the WPA project in 1942, beginning of World War II. Archaeology, well, for the U.S., archaeology was on a hiatus. It only got going again when Carling Maloof, who's actually a former schoolmate and friend of Bill Malloy, was hired by the University of Montana in 1948. At that time, he was the only professionally credentialed archaeologist in the entire state. Maloof was as tireless as he was gregarious, and he immediately sought out information and collaboration with local amateurs and landowners. At U of M, he began the Anthropology and Sociology paper series, and as its editor, he relied heavily on amateur and student contributions, often co-publishing archaeological reports with amateurs such as Thane White, Roy Austin, Susan Han, and McAfee, and many others. In 1949, Maloof was quoted in the Missoulian as praising the cooperation of local farmers, ranchers, and amateur collectors, because Montana still remained one of the least known states archaeologically. So it was sort of all hands on deck for Maloof. Just anyone who was interested, they were sort of brought into the fold, and he was willing to collaborate. Also during the 1950s, the Smithsonian River Basin Surveys uh, brought salvage archaeology to Montana, and they employed field crews that were often made up entirely of avocationalists, some of whom even held supervisory positions. So throughout the 1950s, archaeology in Montana remained very much an amateur endeavor. Things began to change in the late 1950s and early 1960s when several local amateur societies were formed, most notably the Billings Archaeological Society and the Milk River Archaeological Society. Alongside those was the first statewide organization, the Montana Archaeological Society. All three were organized, managed, and populated by a range of enthusiastic avocationalists, amateurs, and collectors. Members met regularly, held annual meetings, recorded and excavated sites, and published reports in local newsletters. They occasionally also in regional journals such as Plains Anthropologist. I wish I had more time to go into the origins and history of the term pot hunter because it's pretty fascinating. <laughs> as you can see by the cover of this novel, not what we think of today when we think of a pot hunter. The term was more commonly used in other parts of the country for relic hunters, people who were digging for their own collections, people who didn't keep records and ended up destroying the archaeological record. But the term was only first used in um, Montana in 1959. There's no other recorded public use of that term in the state before then. Francis Niven used it in a talk he gave for the Quest for Knowledge Society in Bozeman, and then it was later, that talk was later published in Archaeology in Montana in fall of 1959. Niven was himself a business owner in Bozeman. He was an amateur, but he was highly educated. The term pot hunter then starts showing up more and more in meeting records and other publications. In 1961, Carling Maloof sounds quite different. He's quoted in the Billings Gazette at the, after the MAS meetings there, and he's now referring to the threats of vandalism and amateur pot hunters who collect artifacts with little knowledge or regard for data essential to historical research. This quote is emblematic of a major change in tone, where most collectors were now rebranded as pot hunters and a threat to science and heritage, and they shifted away from the practice of collaboration. 
As in most states, things began to change even more in the late 1960s and early 1970s with the passage of the National Historic Preservation Act in 1966 and the Archaeological Resources Protection Act in 1979. These laws were designed to protect and preserve historical and archaeological sites located on public lands. And across the nation, the stricter regulations ended up also being a huge boost to employment opportunities for archaeologists, especially those outside of academia. Archaeologists were now essential to meet the compliance needs of federal agencies. But the legislation also had more immediate consequences here in Montana. Student enrollment went up in archaeology programs, and students and professionals began to outnumber avocationalists on regional projects. Public land agencies also stopped granting excavation and survey permits to the amateur archaeological societies. In addition, the stricter laws brought about divisions among amateurs themselves, primarily between avocationalists who adopted the professional ethics and non-collecting policies, and the amateurs who remained interested in collecting on private property. As these divisions solidified, Montana's local amateur societies dissolved, and only the most dedicated avocationalists remained as contributing members of the state society. The majority of collectors and rural landowners left and formed their own informal networks. One measure of the declining relations among amateurs and professionals after 1970 is the rate with which papers by amateurs were published in archaeology in Montana, which started in 1958 and is ongoing in the present. It's the Journal of the Montana Archaeological Society. Although journal publications are in no way a direct correlate of amateur participation, these data do capture the degree to which amateur contributions were encouraged and valued and they serve as a sort of proxy measure of the degree to which amateurs were engaging with professionals. Through journal publications, amateurs were involved in relationships of reciprocity and mutual respect with professionals. And we can see between the first year category range of 58 to 69, we had 60% more than half of all the papers published were by amateurs, non-professionals, and that drops to um, 18% in the last decade I have up there between 1980 and 1990. So within 20 years, we see a market decline. The archaeology in Montana publication data reflects the declining involvement by amateurs as much as it does the increasing participation by growing numbers of academic, CRM, and agency professionals in Montana. And underlying this, it also reflects a shift in where archaeology was happening. Fieldwork had moved onto public lands, primarily BLM, Forest Service, and Park Service. There were paid work contracts, permits, all sorts of work to be done there. The shift in public lands meant that rural landowners and amateur collectors had fewer opportunities to develop relationships with professionals who were seeking field sites. And that shift has resulted in decades of social distancing. Unlike 50 years ago, Montana's archaeologists know relatively little about the sites on private lands in Montana. And despite the fact that most of Montana's overall archaeological record actually exists physically on those private lands. So in many ways, the heritage preservation laws that were designed to preserve the physical remains of the past led to shifts in professional archaeological practice onto public lands, which had an overall adverse impact on professional amateur relations in Montana. Today, the Montana Archaeological Society is composed primarily of professionals and graduate students with only a handful of aging amateurs. And I'm sorry if I'm insulting anyone with the aging comment because I'll include myself in the aging category. <laughs> and there are declining opportunities for engagement through collaboration. But now I want to finish up where I began, in Judith Gap. 
This summer, MSU conducted a field school at the Bergstrom Bison Kill Site, named for the site's discoverer. And we invited members of the local community to participate in the fieldwork. Students from the school, as well as many folks from surrounding ranches, came out to visit or work at the site. By the end of the field season, many of David Bradley's neighbors began telling us about the sites on their property and asking if we would like to come out and document them. Yes, we would indeed like to do that. Together, MSU archaeologists and students in the community of Judith Gap are slowly building relationships of reciprocity and respect. And together we're exploring the value of the past within the present and new ways to preserve a part of the past that might otherwise be lost. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.